Acts 18, verse 8, through the first part of verse 18. These are God's words. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallia was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Thus far, the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word, may he glorify himself now in the preaching of it and the hearing of it preached. Please be seated. It's marvelous that by the end of this chapter, Uh, or the end of this passage that we aim to hear preached by the Lord's help, Uh, Paul will have had a year and a half faithful, steady, sustained ministry in Corinth. Uh, The second missionary journey has not been going that way. Uh, He's uh, barely had any ministry at all everywhere that he's gone before he has been run out of there. Uh, And when we began hearing this preached last Lord's Day from verse 1, we noted that Paul was in a sort of waiting mode until Timothy and Silas arrived. They were the ones who have been able to have a sustained ministry anywhere, even uh, when the gospel was opposed. Paul in particular uh, has been uh, driven away, uh, and Timothy and Silas were able to stay and minister uh, and we saw how upon their arrival, the spirit had roused Paul's spirit, that he was constrained, compelled to solemnly testify. He he hadn't been unfaithful. He has been dialoguing with people, and the Lord has even been uh, enabling him to persuade people uh, of the gospel. But there's a shift that we noticed when we paid attention to the language of the text last Lord's Day, uh, that he goes from uh, this... Uh, ordinary mode of life in which uh, in which he takes his day job, but then whenever the synagogue is in session, he goes and he 
uh, he dialogues with and persuades people there. Uh, he wasn't going to the synagogue for, uh, for his weekly worship like those who uh, tried to pretend that man invented the change uh, in the Sabbath keeping that remains. Uh, like to say, no, he was going for evangelism uh, and that was fine. But there's a shift from that dialoguing to the solemn testifying uh, that, uh, that we see him doing uh, in verse 5. Uh, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified. And that word uh, being very different than the reasoning uh, in verse 4 to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, and uh, we see not only the doctrine that, uh, that he was suddenly convicted with and, uh, and compelled by uh, and solemnly testified to them, even just in the phrase, Jesus is the Christ, uh, and then uh, as, the, as the Spirit uh, has recorded for us through Luke in verse 6, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, uh, and uh, we can hear even in the way their opposition is described as blasphemy, what it was uh, that the Lord had roused him to preach, stirred him up uh, to preach, uh, mainly that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, that he is named Jesus uh, the Christ because Yahweh is the anointed king that was promised and the high priest who is promised and the prophet uh, like but greater than Moses who is promised. And so he's named Yahweh saves, God with us, uh, and in God's mercy to us. We'll hear uh, more about that uh, in, uh, in the opening of the end of Exodus 29 uh, this afternoon. Uh, but there was more than just that doctrine. There was the doctrine of the urgency uh, of their believing not just the truth about Jesus, but in Jesus, because he is God who alone saves. Uh, and you're not saved by a doctrine. You're saved by a person who defines himself to you and announces himself to you in that doctrine. And if you are not, then your blood is on your own hands. For you have not responded to the God who made his own divine nature evident in everything that was made. We despised his glory and his wrath has been revealed from heaven against all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress that truth about him in their unrighteousness. And so all of us have our blood on our own hands to begin with. But then God calls preachers to announce to them that he himself has come in the person of Jesus Christ and he has purchased a church, an assembly of the redeemed by his blood, as the apostle is going to say to the Ephesian elders in uh, chapter 20 and verse 28, when he, uh, when he is telling them to take heed to themselves and to the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, the, the church which God purchased, the church of God, which he purchased by his own blood. Uh, and to preachers, uh, as to Ezekiel, the Lord says, 
If, they, if you do not command them to repent, if you don't preach to them repentance from God, not just to God, but from God, only by his grace can anyone have ever repented. The command to repent in the apostolic message is not the, the works part of conversion. It is the gracious giving of something that Jesus has power to give. Because when you turn from him, turn from your sin and to him, you find that he gave you the repentance because he to whom you have turned does all of the saving. He does all of it. And God had told Ezekiel, if you don't preach that, I will require their blood at your hands. Which is why the apostle is going to come in uh, Acts 20 when he is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders and say, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. For I didn't hold back that which was profitable. Anything that was profitable, I proclaimed to you the whole counsel of God. But we saw him last week saying, your blood be upon your own heads. In other words, the urgency of the preaching and the urgency of the believing hearing of the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because there are eternal souls at stake. When he says your blood be upon your own heads, he's not just talking about their deaths. He's not just talking about the perishing of when we leave this world, is he? He's talking about an eternal perishing, the second death, as the Bible describes it. And so there are all these aspects of his doctrine that are being reinforced because we are a doctrinally driven people because the person whom we know in whom we know the triune God, the Lord Jesus. He is a person who defines himself to us theologically. And our sin against him, all of our ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness came from what? From suppressing the truth in our unrighteousness. And when we see the mercies of God, and respond to them by offering our bodies as living sacrifices. How is it that God provokes and progresses the growth of a Christian so that we're not conformed to the world, but transformed, that we might be conformed instead to Christ as he has saved us so that we might be conformed to him, Romans 8. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. It's not surprising, is it, that God uses the reinforcing of theology to stir his servant back up to zeal. When we come to that theology, we're still kind of in the theology section. We didn't quite get to finish it last week. But we're calling the first uh, way of organizing uh, our preaching and hearing uh, this morning and afternoon, uh, reassuring his servants' apprehensions, verses 8 through 10, uh, because uh, he's just had this breakup uh, with the synagogue. Uh, it's 
Uh, it's almost, if you're reading and following along as we've been hearing preaching through the book of Acts, and particularly in the second missionary journey, uh, we may be thinking, or we at least suspect what Paul may be thinking, here we go again. He's been stirred up to zeal, but it looks like it's going to be short-lived again. And yet we come out at the end of the passage with him still remaining the rest of that good while of the year and a half that he ministers in Corinth. So the question here, what the Spirit is showing us here, is not just how he was stirred up to zeal, but how he was sustained in that ministry zeal. And God continues to use the reinforcement of his doctrine now to reassure his apprehensions. In the first place, then, in the reassuring of his apprehensions, uh, he reassures him of covenant reality. I was going to say covenant theology, and it's true. He, re he reassures Paul of his covenant theology. But the way he does it is by demonstrating to Paul that this theology that he knows from the scriptures isn't just uh, you know, doctrinal analytics, stuff for nerds uh, and uh, uh, pompous reformed zealots to argue about. Uh, and uh, I don't mean uh, pompous reformed zealots out there somewhere preaching to us. Covenant theology is a reality of how the God who has committed within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to redeem a particular people from before the foundation of the world, the people whom we call the invisible church, the total number of all the elect, whom he loved before the world began, who are his, as he describes to the apostle in verse 10, and who therefore must come to hear and must come to faith in Jesus Christ. That he also has a visible church in which he makes us to understand what it is to be bound to something unbreakably when he binds himself to households, when he binds congregations to him as he bound Israel to himself through the blood of bulls and goats. And now he has bound to himself the visible church on earth through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just as he constituted for himself a church at Sinai, what Stephen in his preaching of covenant theology called the church in the wilderness. He has constituted for himself a church at Calvary that is from among all of the nations. Not now using the spilling of the blood of bulls and goats in the ceremony in which he cut that covenant, but even the blood of his precious son by which he has cut what we call the new covenant, not the covenant of grace over against the covenant of works. No, Sinai was in the covenant of grace. It was all grace, 
I am Yahweh, your God, who has saved you, who, who brought you out of the house of bondage. And he sets before them Christ continuously in, in all of their ceremonies. But a new administration of the covenant of grace in which God, who has planned how he will save and didn't hide that plan at the beginning. No, when he, uh, when the nations uh, were, uh, were united in wickedness again, and I say again, because uh, Babel is Genesis 6, 2.0. But God doesn't destroy the world by a flood at Babel, does he? Why? Because he is bringing into the world the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. Because he has seed of the woman, plural, whom he has decided to redeem, even though they all sinned in the first Adam and fell in the first Adam. And yet from among them, there are those who belong to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And they are, as it were, the seed of Christ. But in Genesis 3, they're called the seed of the woman. So when man does Genesis 6, 2.0, and the distinctions of the godly and the ungodly are obliterated as they were from between the line of Seth and the line of Cain, God separates man and then he singles out from them an idolater named Abram of the Chaldeans. Not a good man, an idolater. And he gives Abram repentance and he gives Abram faith. And he promises to him that from his line, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God's already told in his word and demonstrated in history that he has an ordered, determined, decided plan of how he is going to save all of those whom he has decided to make the seed of Christ, the seed of the woman, those who are his by election from all of eternity. And it goes this way. There is a nation that descends from a man named Abram, and then Abraham, and Isaac. It's the same man, he gets a new name. And Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, he loves, by making him miserable and torturing him, over against Esau, whom he hates by making everything easy and prosperous and, uh, and giving him all of the stuff that wicked churches now preach that you can have in this life if you just uh, say the right words and believe hard enough. And Jacob, whom he loves, he names Israel because he teaches him to stop being the one who grasps for himself but to know that God is the one who does the wrestling and God is the one who does the saving. And when God helps us, he does it by exhausting us and crippling us so that we will be made entirely dependent upon his grace. And from this man, Abram, comes eventually a man named David. And God makes a similar promise to him from David, according to the flesh, is going to come a king who will not be like other kings, certainly won't be like Saul. He'll be a man after God's own heart like David, but a man after God's own heart, not like David. 
Because we saw how much David still needed a redeemer and how he could not be a forever king. And God promises to him that from his line would come the forever king. And yet David died and Solomon died and Rehoboam died and none of them were good. Even Josiah dies. And Josiah isn't righteous enough to atone for anyone. He cannot be the forever king whose reign and kingdom has no end, who becomes the one in whom his people are blessed in the Lord, who has the spiritual effect that Psalm 72 prophesies about the the king that we are hoping for. And so Paul knows his Bible. He knows his covenant theology. That God who takes for himself a people on earth has intended that that people will one day not be merely from one nation, but from all the nations. And yet the people from that nation will be provoked, even as the Lord has said in Hosea, and we don't have a time We don't have time to recap all of covenant theology, but what he sees in verse 8 is covenant reality already, even before the Lord appears to him. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. Hasn't Paul been going to synagogue for weeks and reasoning with people? And then when he solemnly testified, what was the response? Opposition to Jesus being God the Savior, so that they blaspheme God by saying that Jesus is not. And then Paul makes uh, Eustace's house next door, or Justice's house, as it looks like in the English, uh, next door, his base of operations. And who's the first convert? The ruler of the synagogue. And so he he has said, I'm done with you Jews. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I've studied my Bible. I know the plan. I know whom God is going to save. I'm going next door to a Gentile's house and I'm preaching from there. And what does God do? He uses the going to the Gentiles to provoke a Jew to believe. You see, God is the one who does all of the saving and his election means that he's the one who's in charge of history and how this covenant uh, progression in his dealings with the visible church progresses. That's why Romans 9 to 11 isn't some weird uh, 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 aside in the book of Romans. Because he's continuing to preach this God who alone saves us. And it doesn't just have implications for the difference that Christ makes in the believer's life. As we've just started to get into in in the midweek preaching in chapters 5 through 8. The implications of God the alone savior for the difference it makes in the believer's life. But the implications of God being the alone savior for all of human history. That this is what he's been doing since Genesis 3. Is carrying out his plan of salvation. 
And so Romans 9 through 11 is pointing out that it's still going according to plan. The general rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Jews is not a mistake, is not an accident. God has not been frustrated by it. They never had generally believed in him to begin with. And so there was the distinction that there's always, there's always within God's people a visible, invisible church distinction. It's true now of Gentile churches just as much as of Jewish churches. That there are those who are being called by the name Christian who are not Christian. Just as not all who are within Israel were the Israel of God. But that which is the Israel of God now, to use the apostolic language, is the church. It's not replacement theology. It's just the theology of the Bible that the apostle knew. And so his experience in Corinth is actually something that he tries to do. Isn't that what he says in Romans 11? That because one of the ways that God saves some Jews is by provoking them to jealousy when they see the gospel going to Greeks, that he magnifies his own ministry, hoping that some of the Greeks that get saved through his preaching to the Gentiles will be ones through whom he provokes Jews to come to faith. And that since that is what God has given him, that's the place that God has given him. You remember at the beginning of Romans 9, he says, I wish that I myself could be accursed for the sake of my brethren. I wish that I could literally be damned, go to hell, so that Jews would be saved. But that's not what God had given him to do. What had God given him to do? To preach to Gentiles so that Jews would be saved. So that's what he's doing instead. And so he doesn't just reinforce Paul's covenant theology. He sets right in front of him covenant reality. The God who has said that the way that he's going to carry out his eternal, everlasting, electing purpose in history is going to be Jew first and then Greek. It's right there in the beginning of Romans Romans 1.16. How many of you have an abbreviated idea of Romans 1.16 in your head? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. First for the Jew then for the Greek. Why does he say that? Because this is something God is actually doing in history. He is actually saving people by his power in history. That's what he sees when he goes next door to Eustace's house and the first convert is the ruler of the synagogue and his household. Covenant theology. Notice it doesn't even say that his household was baptized. We've already seen that a couple of places. But here, the and his household reminds him that God deals with men and deals with households and deals with congregations in a covenantal way, visibly in time, to communicate the unbreakable election in which God within himself 
is a covenantal being because he is full of faithfulness and he is full of goodness. And just as he displays faithfulness and goodness in keeping covenant with households and covenant with churches, so in himself he is perfectly faithful and perfectly good and the covenant of redemption cannot be broken because that's one that takes place between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there are no covenant curses in that one because there's no covenant breaking in that one. How dreadful that this wonderful truth, this wonderful reality is sometimes reduced sophomorically to saying, once saved, always saved usually by people who have no idea what saved even means. But Crispus gets converted, and his whole household believes with him. And who gave each of them faith? It wasn't Crispus. It wasn't Daddy. It was the God who deals this way with households. And so uh, we have in verse 8, not just... Uh, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, but also, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now, what did the apostles say as they were being baptized? Remember, he himself did not do much of the baptizing. He, he was a preacher, but he writes to the Corinthians later, and uh, he, he says... Um, you know, I didn't baptize uh, very many of you. There was the household of uh, Stephanus. And, um, but what was, what was the name that was proclaimed at each of those baptisms? The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's one name singular. He doesn't say, Jesus in Matthew 28 doesn't say uh, into the names, but into the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The, the God who has bound himself within himself to save a particular people and who has come and done that, adding humanity to himself so that when Jesus is a resurrected man in Matthew 28, we're not going to finish the, the whole outline, but this is uh, really worth doing well. Um, Matthew 28. And he, he's standing before them as a resurrected man and it's talking about the 11. But he's, he is fully God and fully man and some of them are having difficulty believing. And so don't be surprised if some of you have difficulty believing. This is after three years of Jesus' teaching this is after the cross. This is after 40 days of the resurrected Jesus teaching them. Then the 11 disciples, oh sorry, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They're on their faces but they're not sure about their theology. Jesus corrects that theology in baptism. 
Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What, what sort of man can have all the authority of heaven? The God-man. That's it. It's like in Philippians 2, when he says that Jesus has the name that is above every, all names, so that every knee, not just on the earth and under the earth, but every knee in heaven bows, and every tongue in heaven confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not Lord lowercase l, that's not Lord Adonai, sir, master, whatever. No, the, the tongues in heaven confess, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And Jesus comes now in Matthew 28, and he says, heaven is about to be full of my human glory, and earth is full of my human glory. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Some doubted. What did they need? Well, they needed a theology lesson. Theology lesson in the identity of Jesus and a theology lesson in covenant theology. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, he says to these 11 Jews, whom he's told to start the church in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, which they would hear as the corrupted version of the northern kingdom, reuniting the, the two kingdoms in faith in Jesus Christ, in relationship with God, the way God promises to when he restores his people, not just from exile, but spiritually to himself in the book of Hosea. Which, by the way, is... Uh, one of the places where he teaches that he's going to provoke his people with other nations. He says, go, the, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, not circumcising them, baptizing them. This is the constitution of a new church and it has a new sign of initiation. A sign that doesn't say you need blood to be spilled, but a sign that says the one who shed his blood is sitting on the throne of glory and he is superintending and ruling by his almighty power because he has all authority in earth and he has all authority in heaven and he is the one who adds to his church. And so whether you come into the church by birth or whether you come into the church by conversion, you receive the sign of initiation of the one who sits on the throne and we don't shed blood in the sign. And the sign is given in the name by which we know God now because the person by which we know God now is especially Jesus. And so the name 
into which you are baptized. And this is the name that you need to have said at your baptism. Or it's not a Christian baptism. That name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sometimes in the New Testament you'll see baptized in, into Jesus. Or even baptized in the name of Jesus. And you say, well didn't they say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well yes they did. But Jesus is the one in whom we know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's the one in whom you can see the Father, as he tells Philip in John 14. He's the one whom you know as God when the Spirit comes in divine power and his fellowship. End of 2 Corinthians 3, beginning of 2 Corinthians 4. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. How are they going to do this? Didn't God teach his people to observe all the things that he had commanded them through Moses? And what did his people do? The Old Testament is not a book about how if God brings you into his church and gives you his instructions, you are going to be better off because you're going to keep them. But what did we hear earlier? Repentance is not proclaimed merely as necessary in Jesus Christ. Repentance is proclaimed as provided in Jesus Christ. And so on his authority, they're baptized. On his authority, they are taught. And in dependence upon his power, they observe, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And this brings us back to our text in Acts 18. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That it's Jesus who adds to his church Jesus who keeps the promises made in the sign. Jesus who teaches by his servants teaching. Even as we prayed before the sermon, that was our embracing covenant reality. And Jesus who gives the observing of the things that are taught and that are commanded. That it is his presence with his church over which he is God in his divinity, but over which he is priest and prophet and king in his humanity. This is why we don't have priests, we have pastors. This is why we are a nation of priests, as it were. What we call the priesthood of all believers. One of, the, one of the crowning doctrines of the Reformation as the satanic lies of the Roman Catholic Church were being thrown off and the church was being delivered out of hundreds of years of bondage. The Antichrist who sits in the church of God as if he himself is God. Something that only the Lord Jesus is. 
Jesus is not just God over the church. He is God in the church as her priest, as her prophet, as her king. A man, Moses, has been replaced by the divine son, Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. And he is with us. And that is what makes the church work. That's how conversion happens. By the faithfulness and power of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is with us. And so here you have Paul, every one of these baptisms, and I'm sure he's preaching it better than I am. Or whomever he's trained, Silas is preaching it better than I am. Titus, or not Titus, Timothy is preaching it better than I am. Over and over and over and over with every baptism. And every time you remember your baptism, you preach all of that to yourself. And every time you see a baptism, you see not just the theology of it, but the reality that Jesus Christ, about whom you believe all of these things, still has a church on earth, is still working through the preaching, is still giving life to people to believe. And that he's all the hope that that adult or that child have. It is not the testimony of a man that he has believed in Jesus Christ. It is the testimony of Jesus Christ that he is saving the people whom he brings to faith in himself. And you and I come often, don't we, with our doubting. We worship. We all worship. But some of us doubt. Is he really God? How can I know? Is he really risen from the dead? Is the Bible really true? Is there such a thing as the Holy Spirit? Can someone so bad as I am actually be saved? All sorts of doubts. And he gives us to see another baptism and remember our own. Yes, he's God. And because he's God, his word is true. And he is really saving in his power. And yes, his blood is rich enough to atone for a sinner like me. And if you're washed in his blood, you're completely clean. And nothing else can take away sin, but that blood will take away all sin. And yes, he's still working in the world. He still has a church. And yes, his Holy Spirit particularly attends the church and particularly attends the preaching of his word. And yes, it is Jesus himself who is present to his church in the word and in the sacraments by his spirit. And he comes and he affirms that in every baptism, just like he affirms it in the supper. It's a covenant meal. It's not some inward, introspective memorial moment. It is a remembering that there is a risen Lord Jesus sitting in glory, continuing to give his life to his church, which he bought with his blood and which is bound from earth to God by his blood so that she has access to the throne of grace and comes with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience as was testified to her in her baptism when her body was washed 
with pure water. So we'll, we'll, we will start with verses 9 and 10 next week. Um, even Zephaniah has learned his verse at this point. If you are an adult and you do not know your verse um, uh, by next week, then I don't know how to persuade you that scripture memory is important and helpful and blessed by God. Um, but it's out of that in verse 8 that Jesus himself comes. The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. So he appears to him and speaks to him. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. What are you saying? I have authority in heaven. I have authority on earth. I have the ones whom I have decided to save from before the foundations of the world. My plan of how I'm going to do that throughout history that includes the constitution of different churches at different times within the covenant of grace and the church that is now covenanted to God had that covenant cut by the spilling of the blood at Calvary. That's all still in force. And the I am with you always, even to the end of the age, at the end of Matthew 28, 20, that isn't just flowery thinking to keep us going. That's a present reality, even when it's invisible. And the Lord, who has just had his apostle preach those things over and over again at every one of those baptisms, comes and makes him to know it even more as a reality. You see, Paul was a man of like nature as we are, wasn't he? And part of what Jesus knew Paul needed for sustaining him was to appear to him visibly and say, I am with you. You see, Jesus was with him just as much when he was invisible, just as much as when he wasn't having the vision. He was going to be with him the whole 18 months, not just one night at the beginning. And he comes to us when he says, don't you remember baptism? Don't you remember maybe not your own being baptized? But in the same way, he might say, remember your circumcision. It's an ongoing reality. Either a circumcised person or not. Women were not. But they would still remember the, the sign that was applied to their father. Or their husband. He says, don't you remember your baptism? I am with you. Even to the end of the age. And the Lord Jesus who is with us is this God, the second person of the triune covenanting God whose salvation is absolutely sure for everyone whom he has elected to save. 
and we'll have to come back if the Lord spares us to hear it preached in verses 9 to 18 next week. And uh, if the Lord takes us, we'll know it better before next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for announcing us, announcing to us in your word that you are who you have said that you are and that you are doing still in our day in this place, in our houses, with this congregation, which are covenanted to you by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are still that God to us, that he is still that God and Savior to us, and that he is still carrying out the plan of salvation in the way that he said he would. Make us to know the faithfulness and power of our Redeemer. Make us to know his presence with us. And oh, bring to salvation. Bring our baptized children to faith, to justification. Bring them to assurance. Grant that whenever their assurance is shaken, even after they are justified, that you'd bring them back by your spirit to your word, to your sacrament, and give them that certain knowledge that they have been saved by making them not only to be sure of the truth about Jesus, but to be sure that they believe in Jesus by the power of your working in them. O Lord, some of our adults sometimes lack assurance. And sometimes it is our lack of assurance that is making our zeal flag and keeping us from being sustained in our ministries. O oh Lord, how many parents grow weary in their well-doing. How many who have begun well in wanting to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ even in the ordinary way of dialoguing and persuading, have let it slide and let it slack. Have mercy on us in the same way you had mercy on Paul and reassure us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.